Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world. And we're also making the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people. And this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders past, present and emerging for keeping the sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. This is a very special edition of Come Along for the Ride podcast, which I'll tell you about soon. First, I'd like to tell you about one of our wonderful patrons, Peter Papp. Peter is a small business patron who gets his business promoted on every podcast and on my social media pages, as all small business patrons do. Peter's business is Peter and the Herd. He works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery. He does equine communication, and he also does human and horse relationship building. You can find Peter through his Facebook page, Peter and the Herd, or his Instagram by the same name. Go and check him out. I've got him doing a little bit of work with Gypsy right now, and I'll let you know what it is he finds. Our other small business patron is Belinda Dawes from Journey Equine. Belinda has trained with the wonderful women I've spoken to in this interview you're about to hear. That's Hannah Weston and Rachel Beddingfield and their connection training method. Belinda is schooled and aware of everything you will hear Hannah and Rachel talk about in this episode. Belinda is based on the Gold Coast and can travel to surrounding areas. So if you like what you hear today, get in touch with Belinda. I did, and now she's mine and my horse's coach. Belinda's website, journeyequine.com, and you can find her on all the usual socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The links for both Peter and Belinda's work are going to be in the show notes. So go in there and click on over and check them out. If you would like to become a patron of this podcast and help bring it back to weekly episodes, then please head on over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash come along for the ride podcast. This is where you can subscribe for as little as $5 a month and help me get production costs covered to be able to bring you more content more regularly. $5 a month isn't much to you, but it seriously means the world to me. I'd love for you to consider it. Once again, it's at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash come along for the ride podcast. The link's in the show notes. In this very special episode, I speak with Hannah and Rachel from Connection Training about their new book called Connection Training, The Heart and Science for Positive Reinforcement Training. This book is not simply another horse book. This is, I believe, a textbook that's essential reading for all horse owners, even the ones who do not believe in positive reinforcement. A lot of you may believe in affirmative training, 
but not like the use of treats. And that's okay. There's still so much for you to learn from this book. And if you use negative reinforcement, then you really need to listen to this podcast and then get onto Amazon and purchase this book. For those of you who don't use treats because your horse might be aggressive or you've put them down because you just couldn't figure it out and it wasn't working for you and your horse, have a listen to the podcast because we talk about that as well. And there's chapters, full chapters in the book just about this. There are ways around it. It doesn't mean you have to use treats, really. Train the way you want to train. But in this book, it's going to give you the foundation of everything you need to know about horses. This book has a science behind how horses learn. She's, they also speak about calming signals. Rachel spent time presenting with Rachel Drazmar on calming signals. Rachel spent many years researching the best possible way to train horses and her daughter Hannah has spent the time taking the research to the horses and putting into practice all the things that Rachel's brought to her and making it fun for both horses and humans and now both of them are very connected to the heart and the science of what this is and they really embody everything that is um, in the book and that they talk about. This book is full of pictures and practical things you can take to your horses right now. It's not the kind of book you read and put down and wonder what to do next. It has serious step-by-step -step guides, video resources at the end of every chapter and through chapters. It also has a club you can join at the end if you feel you need even more support. So for now, let's get into this interview. It's not surprisingly a long one. I read this book and I had a lot of questions, but it was also really important to me for this podcast and you guys, I really wanted to give you a good feel for what you are going to get in this book and why it's a must read. So grab a cuppa or if you're driving, enjoy the drive and everything that comes with a wonderful Hannah Weston and Rachel Beddingfield. Hannah Weston and Rachel Beddingfield, welcome. Hi Tracy, thank you for having us back again. It's always really nice to chat with you. Hi Tracy, I'm uh, I'm talking to, to you from Spain today. Lovely to uh, lovely to connect again. Yeah, it is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And there's a special reason we're talking today. So if anyone wants to hear your kind of juicy, wonderful life story that we've been through before, as to how you got to kind of where you are today, we have done an interview on the podcast before and I highly recommend you go back and have a listen to that and uh, I'll put a little link to that in the show notes as well so everyone can get a little bit of a double dose of you guys. So there's a reason we're coming together to speak today and that is because you've written a book. We have. <laughs> it's been a while in the making but it's finally here which is amazing. Yeah, yeah and it's not just... Um, for those listeners, it's it's not just a book where you learn a little bit about Rachel and Hannah. It's like a textbook is the best way I can describe uh, what it is that this book is. Tell me how it came about. Uh, well, Rachel, you started off, didn't you? I did, yes. Um, well, basically, I had spent quite a lot of years getting immersed in lots of different well three particular scientists i would say i've got a science background i'm a bit of a geek and an egghead so i had started reading the work of um franz deval who is a wonderful primate researcher and he was really challenging notions of anthropomorphism in other words of the the, the, the bind we were in, we weren't allowed to say an animal feels this or an animal feels that. 
and it was considered unscientific. And he was really challenging those notions. What were his findings? Generally, um, well, very much, very, very much that um, you know, animals do have uh, mammals at least, and now we're finding uh, so much more out about fish and birds as well. But if we stick to mammals at the moment, um, that they have highly complex emotional systems just like us, and so their behavior, and he was looking at it very much from the behavioral viewpoint. So you might have seen one of his wonderful videos on YouTube where he has two capuchin monkeys, and um, they're doing a task to earn grapes, but then one of them gets fed a piece of cucumber instead of a grape, and gets so cross that he's been given something less than his partner that he throws the piece of cucumber at the researcher. As he should. As he should. So he was exploring, you know, from pri the primate viewpoint that we cannot say they aren't feeling something when we see these kind of behaviours. And then there was Robert Sapolsky, who was studying <clears throat> the mechanisms of learning in the brain. So he was discovering great things about dopamine and how that affects learning. So he's got a million wonderful videos on YouTube to watch. He wrote the book, um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Mm. So he again was looking at the kind of comparative animal behavior and animal lives with social mammals, particularly. And how did this all lead to a book? Well, the final one was a, a neuroscientist called Jak Panksepp. And I think he was the one that for me brought it all together because he was doing very, very good uh, research, had been researching since the 60s into actually looking into the brains of, of mammals and mapping the structures and the chemistries and absolutely clearly demonstrating in scientific terms that um, mammals shared the same brain structures as us, because uh, we're mammals, obviously. And it was so enlightening to me because at the time we were working on you know, we'd gone through the natural horsemanship and using negative reinforcement and come to positive reinforcement or clicker training. But we were kind of, clicker training kind of grew up in the behaviorist world where they didn't look at emotions. And we were already working with horses in a much more emotional way, uh, being aware of how they felt, whether it was fear or rage or excitement or, you know, wanted to cuddle you and, 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 and you know, be friends with you. So he, his book was just like the big light bulb going on because it was the science behind our practice. And I think by the time I had gone through all these people, it was uh, 20, um, 2014, five years ago this month, that I started writing the book. Basically, my head was bursting <laughs> and I just had to get it out. So um, I started to, uh, I did a deal with my sister that I would send her 2,000 words a day by email. And she didn't have to read them, but she had to give me into trouble if I didn't send her my 2,000 <laughs> words a day. And it was really, I just had to get it. And so much stuff by then that it was a case of, I have to get this down on paper. And I did that for about <clears throat> six months. And then, and it was very much going to be the very scientific side of things. And then Hannah and I were talking and, and we sort of thought, well, actually, we could put this together, putting the science and the practice together, because, of course, by then we had a massive amount of information and, and resource in horse training. 
Yeah, because we've been doing our approach. Sorry, we've been doing the videos for so long, and um, if Rachel's side is the real, really going through the the theory and the science, mine is the getting out and uh, playing around with it with lots and lots of horses. So it kind of grew from there to be a real mix of the practice with the um, scientific background. Mm, and that hence the name, the heart and science of positive horse training. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. And, and, you know, we, we are both those sides. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people who are doing some lovely training with horses coming from the heart, but they don't necessarily explain it in a way that uh, other people can copy them. Um, and that, you know, you watch these marvellous horse people who have natural feel and talent, and, and they're marvellous, and they're wonderful. But you get people like me who don't have any of that natural feel and talent. Um, so we wanted to write a book that would be, um, and, and basically on our videos as well, that, that work for people who need to understand the science and the explanation behind the practice in order to practice better. Absolutely. Um, and have really kind of where, where I come from as well. The really clear steps is this is how you do it. Read it first, yeah. understand why you do it, and then go and watch this video that will show you even more. Yeah. And I think um, coming at it from the, the science of emotions perspective makes it quite, once you understand that it's the emotions that are driving the behavior, um, it makes it much easier to assess your horse, what's happening in the situation, understand why they're behaving or responding in that way. Um, and then um, I feel like my job is just to give you lots of ideas of different techniques and tools you might be able to use to help your horse find more clarity or more relaxation or more connection with you or um, just some ways to really bring about those really positive emotions. But I think it makes, it, it just makes a lot of sense looking at how, uh, looking at the behavior and the training from this kind of emotional perspective. It makes it very quite simple much simpler i think to understand your horse and be able to make some good training decisions yeah absolutely yeah and yeah and, and i wanted to i think again all the way through we've had this once i had read this science i wanted to give it to as many horse people as i could because we were still being accused of anthropomorphism we were you know we would say to the vet something's not right you know she just doesn't look right doesn't feel right i don't can't put my finger on it and the vet would be a bit kind of like yeah yeah you know the horse owners you're too soft or you you know or people would be being told to get harder and do more with their horses mm -hmm. And they were feeling, I don't feel this is right. I feel, you know, and, and, and I wanted to give people that scientific support that says, yes, you can say your horse is depressed. Yes, you can say your horse is angry. Yes, you can say your horse is happy, is joyful, is all of those things. And we can talk about our horses emotionally and not get hit over the head by a scientist saying, you can't say that about animals. Because we can now, the science is there. And, uh, and so I wanted to give people that support so they could then you know, feel what they were feeling. And then, as Hannah says, we then take our decisions about training from that place of how does our horse feel and, and how do we help the horse to feel joyful and relaxed? Yeah, and it's such an important um, 
empowerment tool for horse owners. I can name you, I have been literally on a group chat with a couple of friends of mine and we're all going through the same thing at the moment, whereas we know our horse is in pain and we can't find somebody to pinpoint what and where the pain is. So we're workshopping this and you know, I'm told that my 16-year-old horse who's had perfect behavior her entire life, who finally won't give a hoof up for hoof trimming, is just having bad teenage behavior. <laughs> and people still believe this and they still say this. I'm like, she's 16. She's not two. It's not her first rodeo. You know, she's had this done so many times. And she's so giving. And now she is stomping the hell out of what's going on and she refused to give it we'd spend an hour on a leg and she refused to give it and that's why this is so important this is empowering for horse people to be able to say hold on a second i know it's not right this is why i know it's not right and now i don't have to feel silly or anything like that anymore you know you can't pull the wool over my eyes i've got the proof which is great yeah and not and to trust yourself with your horse because at the end of the day you know your horse better than anybody and um it's nice to well it is very supporting i think to have a framework to be able to uh trust yourself and and stick to your guns about what you want to do with your horse and and what you feel is right so again just kind of resist that people trying to kind of push you to push your horse over threshold in one way or another. Um, I think it's really helpful to have it. Absolutely. Uh, Education is power. Help. And we're finally yeah. becoming more educated in the horse world in something that I think we've all instinctively known for a long time. I would agree. <laughs> yes, indeed. And um, when we went to see Yak Punksep, his work has been taken up much more in the dog world um, than in the horse world. And when we went to see him a few years ago, uh, it was organized by a dog trainer at the, the conference. Um, but that's what he said. You know, he said, you know, I've worked all this time among scientists. I've had to battle and battle and battle to prove what he is, uh, what who he was finding. He said, but as soon as I started talking to dog owners, they all went, yeah, I've known that forever. You know? yeah. um, but the scientists, you know, and the, and the, and the science for a very long time was dominated by this uh, kind of behaviorist approach of we can see behavior but we don't know what the emotion is behind that we can't see it we can't measure it we can't so we just kind of pretend it doesn't exist um and and that's just not how we live we're social mammals and we connect with each other and with animals through emotions mm. so you know, it's uh, it, it, so it's in that sense it's um giving people the the confidence and the the support for what they already know and feel and so that they can feel you know i can actually assert that this like you're saying with your horse it, it is obviously a pain issue because why would they behave a change for any other reason you know why would she suddenly decide she's not cooperating anymore there's no no answer to that that it doesn't come out with well obviously it's uncomfortable for her or painful for her and she's telling you you know very clearly very clearly. Yes. So I yeah. agree. So let's talk a little bit about the science of emotions um, so we can give people that kind of framework of, um, of the system, the, the emotional space that we want them in when they're learning. Yeah, the, the there are many arguments going on in the neuroscience community. 
Uh, we don't need to take part in those arguments. They're quite fascinating. About It's a bit like um, colours of the rainbow. You know, different cultures have five colours or eight colours or whatever. There are shades in the middle. So, so it's not worldwide agreed that there are X number of emotional systems that have these particular labels. So we took the science from Jacques Panksepp, who is one of the, who was, sadly he died a couple of years ago, but he was one of the leading um, neuro neuroscientists in this area and work with his particular framework. So he has seven emotional states and by that it means um, they are primal, they are very, very deep in the brain and you were born with them. So it's no, this is not about learning, this is about these are already inbuilt and they're kind of the tools for life. So it's because you have a seeking system, for example, that you, um, that an animal, that a, a newborn foal will be driven to smell the milk and move towards where the milk is. It's, bec it's because you have a fear system that when something uh, alarms you, you will run away. Um, so the emotion comes before the behavior, the feeling um, comes before the behavior. And we know this because you could walk into a field with a head collar and a horse who was frightened of what would happen if once the head collar goes on will run away. So that horse is feeling fear and another horse um, will come towards you because the head collar means I'm going to get my bucket of feed or I'm going to be with this person I like and hang out with them. And, and so their feeling is a feeling of what's called Panksepp calls care, which is kind of like the love system. So, you know, the, 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 um, the behavior that you see is driven by the underlying emotion and the emotional state that the brain um, has got that drives that behavior. So he talks about the seven systems and there are three of them which are that feel really good in the brain. So basically that means they are stimulating um, dopamine and serotonin, the feel good chemicals um, to be released into the brain. Um, and that's the seeking system, which is the one, it's kind of led by your nose. If you know, it's the one that makes you explore. It's absolutely scent based because they're all linked to the senses. Um, so it's oh that's a nice smell you know when you when you walk past a bakery and mm, that's a nice smell that's absolutely your seeking system in the brain lighting up like a Christmas tree um, and the other two ones that feel good um, are the care system um, which is basically based on oxytocin the love hormone the cuddle hormone um, so when you sit and stroke your dog, your dog is feeling, and the two of you are just having a little bit of a love in, your dog is awash in oxytocin, which feels nice, and so are you, and that builds the bond between you. And then the third really nice one is the play system, um, and this is something that, again, in dog training has been used a lot more because dogs are very easy to play with, um, but it's something we're really keen on developing in horses too. So it just feels good. It, you're in that wonderful zone of, of um, playing and enjoying and exploring. So those are the sort of three good ones, and they're the ones that we try and um, work with in training. So we're looking for them to be curious, connected, and ready to play. So in terms of the training state of mind, those are the emotional states we like to work in. And there, they affect, we, um, I often hear it spoken about with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. 
you know, it's, they relate to one of those as well and the not so good ones relate to the other? Yes, broadly. Um, and I mean, certainly um, when a horse uh, or when an animal goes into a fearful, feeling fearful, that's a switch from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic sorry, from the parasympathetic to the sympathetic nervous system. Mm. Um, so the there is that switch between them. But this is kind of more, um, I mean, that's a very uh, physical, physiological system it's to do with heart rate, to do with cortisol levels. And, and so in a sense, that's almost um, like, like a, a deeper structure. This is elaborated from that. So if you like the, parasymp the nervous system and the sympathetic and parasympathetic are related to the brain stem, which is the deeper, older structure in the brain. And so then obviously the, the body needed um, to be a little bit more, uh, have more nuances than just those two things. Mm. So the emotional system became elaborated and it's, the more and more the animal is a social animal, the more elaborated the emotional system is. So we know that um, dolphin brains, for example, appear to be developed in a way that we don't quite understand yet, but it looks like it's to do with the social networks and their social relationships. So it's a really good point, Tracy, to link the two. So basically, um, if an animal is uh, fearful, then the heart rate will go up immediately. But the feeling of fear um, is in a younger part of the brain. It's right in the middle of the brain. So they're very associated. And not to get too technical about it, but right in the center of the brain, there's this tiny part of the brain. And on the bottom side of the brain, on the, on the, uh, the lower side and the older part of this little structure, um, are the receptors coming up from the body that tell tell the brain about heart rate and blood pressure and so on and then on the top side um, the younger part of this tiny structure is where the sensory um, neurons come in so that's where the the animal might smell something that makes them fearful so the two are so closely bound the physical and the sense sensory um, receptors are so closely bound it, it gets very hard to say which comes first um, does the animal smell something that's fearful that then triggers the heart rate? You, that must be the way it, it goes. But then um, if an animal has a higher heart rate for whatever reason, then they're more likely to be fearful. Mm -hmm. So this is why when you start to work with a young horse and you ask them to go into canter, they tend to get overexcited because canter has always been associated either with running away from something fearful or a high energy play with other horses. So the, a calm, relaxed canter is almost something they have to learn because they wouldn't do that naturally um, because in the brain, those two are very closely associated. Wow. So, you know, try not to get too complicated and too much into the brain science. But, yeah, you can't separate the emotional and the physical and particularly in um, animals like horses where um, that is, you know, they, they run first and ask questions later sort of thing. Um, they are much more driven. Their behavior is much more immediately driven by the emotion than, say, for us who learn to inhibit that a lot. As a very young, you, you very much learn to inhibit. And, and eventually, as an adult, you almost don't know how you're feeling sometimes because your, your big thinking brain is, is suppressing 
the feelings and, and suppressing the behavior that you want to do and we become so good at it, we actually often don't even know that we're suppressing fear, for example, or anxiety or even joy. Um, and we, we learn to become, you know, less expressive of how we genuinely feel. And then we have to spend, you know, 20 years in therapy learning how we feel. Yeah, to get back to where horses are right now. To get back to where horses are, <laughs> which is why horses are so good for us because they just, they are so connected um, and they don't, you know, go, oh, do I feel anxious? They've just gone to the other end of the school and they're near the gate and, you know, and they decided they, their behaviour is totally congruent and immediate with how they're feeling, which is why we always say horses never lie, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And... <coughs> it's great that you're able that that was a, a wonderful explanation of the nervous system and the emotions that was brilliant I love that, that that was there and also there's you know these two words that a lot of people talk about these days and it's learned helplessness and can you explain because mm -hmm. it's in the book and it explains it in a way that completely makes sense to me finally um tell me what you know about that now. good Okay, well, the, um, the learned helplessness is in connection with the seeking system. So the seeking system is the one, um, it's the get up and go system. And it's the one that will say, which will um, enable the animal to move away from something that uh, is aversive, that they don't like, or move towards something that is the technical term is appetitive or they have an appetite for. And those are just the two behaviors that the, the brain has. That's the brain is either, yes, let's go for it, or no, let's, leave, let's go away from it. It's either positive or negative. It's either um, rewarding or punishing. Again, those are the technical terms that are used. So the learned helplessness came about from a rather hideous experiment that was done with dogs, where basically they had, um, uh, a floor one side was electrified and was colored dark blue and one side wasn't electrified and was colored pale blue so the dogs learned obviously to avoid the dark blue um, but then they started to make the shades closer and closer and closer and closer until the dogs couldn't tell which area was electrified and which wasn't and they weren't able to leave the electrified area because they couldn't work out where it wasn't electrified. So that's essentially how the learned helplessness came about. Um, they realized that they couldn't change the situation. They, they couldn't take an action that would get them out of the bad situation. And that essentially is what learned helplessness is, is where a horse, for example, has been corrected so often, so often, so often, that every time they've tried something new, say, for example, a horse that um, is wearing quite a punishing bit and every time they lift their head up um, then the bit is is punishing that the reason they learn to hold their head in what is known as the correct position is because anything else punishes them so they just learn that they're helpless to do anything else but that thing of holding their head in exactly that position that's how using a bit as punishment works um, and what it essentially means is that the brain, the seeking system, has tried everything it can to find a solution to the, the problem the horse has, uh, but it can't find a, a solution. And what happens then is that the seeking system starts to shut down and shut down and shut down and become less and less aroused. 
um, the animal gets has fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer ideas of, of things to try. Um, and eventually the animal just gives up trying. And actually that is a state of depression. Um, and that is what depression is. Now we know depression is this de total depletion of the seeking system. So a characteristic sign of depression is you lose your get up and go. You don't want to get out of bed. You're not interested in anything. Um, so the seeking system has become completely depleted and not acting. Um, and so basically you get a behavioural shutdown. Other and otherwise known as the bomb-proof pony? Often known as the bomb-proof pony, yeah. Often known as a very good horse. Now that horse is brilliant. That horse is a push-button horse. And they've just given up. Their brain is shut down. Um, and we can make it even worse because if we don't give animals horses choices in life so if you take a, a situation where the horse is kept in a stable um most of the time maybe has a little corral or something to go out in has no choice about their food the hay is delivered any other feed is delivered has no choice about um whether they want to be groomed whether they want to be taken out and used and ridden or and, and then put back in again then progressively that animal is going to get more and more and more shut down because the brain is going, well, I can't do anything about this. And it's actually a very protective thing. It becomes, because the brain can't, you know, you can't get excited about stuff that you have no control over. So again, the animal becomes more and more, the horse becomes more and more shut down. But then from the human viewpoint, it's a case of, well, that's a very easy horse. They won't do anything. You know, they won't spook, they won't buck, they won't do anything because they've tried all that before and it didn't work. But they um, often have um, a lack of enthusiasm about things, and which is the other side. Like <laughs> you want your horse to still be enthusiastic about going forwards, but not to react to anything else. And I think, you know, it, they go hand in hand. Yes, they yeah. really do. It's a difference between dominance and connection. It's that simple, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you go, Rachel. Okay, yes, I think it's about choice, if you like. And, and as we say in the book, uh, connection is a choice. And if you're going to want to work from a place of building connection, you have to offer choice. And so exactly what you're saying, it comes from a position of creating learned helplessness is about taking away choice and about taking away any um, agency the horse has in any situation. So, you know, we often, you know, it's hideously used, for example, with foals when they're weaned, mm -hmm. where the foal is shut away in a stable um, and they just cry and cry and cry, but nothing will work. So eventually they stop crying and people say, well, they've got used to it. They've not got used to it. They've had the most traumatic experience, hopefully, of their life. And, um, they have gone into learned helplessness. That bit of the brain has just shut down and said, well, I can't do anything. I can't, you know, and then they have to start, you know, if then all they're given is a highly managed situation where they don't get any really any real choices in their day-to-day -day life. They don't get to choose who they're with or what they're eating or where they go or anything like that. Then that will continue to be suppressed because it's only through choice and learning and experience that you can develop your brain and develop that seeking system that goes, oh, I'll try this, oh, that worked, or I'll try this, oh, that didn't work, um, that you get the lights coming on and the horse you know, truly being there and able to connect. So these shut down horses often feel 
disconnected. They feel quite aloof sometimes. You feel as if they don't, they're not very interested in people. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, you've probably everybody's experienced the trekking horse or the riding school horse where they just have one person after another. And there's just no connection with humanity, with human beings. And who can blame them because there's nothing in it for them to connect. So when you take a horse like that and you start to work with them in a way that gives them choices and builds connection, some of them can be, can take quite a long time to, to even be able to choose the smallest thing. And my mare, Rusheen, was <clears throat> so abused and so shut down when she came that I can remember it took her about three years of positive reinforcement training for her to even think about um, trying to mug me for treats, going straight to the treat bag. And I remember the day she did, and I came into Hannah and I said, Rasheen mugged me, Rasheen <laughs> mugged me. I mean, for her to dare to do something of her own initiative and, and, and you know, just that straightforward, you've got treats, I want a treat, gimme, gimme, was just the most amazing breakthrough. And it took three years um, of working with her. She was so shut down and had given up trying everything. Mm. Yeah, and you only get a true yes if you allow them to say no. And that's actually really hard for us as horse people because we want our horses to say yes to everything we want to do with them. Of course we do. We want to say, do you want to come in? Yeah, of course I want to come in. Do you want to do this groundwork? Yeah, of course I want to do the groundwork. Do you want to go out in the in the horse box? Yeah, of course I want to go out in the horse box. Do you want to be ridden? Yeah. I mean, that is really great. But to get that, it's going to be, they've got to learn that they can say no to it first, I think. And um, that can be quite a switch around for a lot of horses that haven't had that choice before and can be quite scary I think for us humans that haven't given that choice before either it's daunting to allow the horses to say no and go oh okay well I suppose we better make a plan to change this shall we yeah. <laughs> um, and and to go through that and that's certainly something I've been through with my own horses but when you get through to the other side then it's really um, it, it's really worth it but it doesn't mean that they're going to say yes all the time because they still have their own agendas and things too so it's it's kind of keeping that um conversation going all of the time and um, but, it, but it's also tracy you know going back to your horse all those years where she has said yes i'm quite happy to pick my hoof up mm. um and now she's saying no i'm not happy to pick my hoof up it's tremendous because you've got that conversation with her and you know there's something wrong because why would she say no you you know you've got to ask why would you say no after all those years of saying yes and nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 it's a pain issue yeah and that's one of the things that we really want people to understand is horses they're wonderful animals we know this they want to connect they want to play they want to explore all those things are innate in horses um, and that's presumably why we love them and, and, and want to connect them. So when you've got a connected horse like you have, Tracy, and then that horse disconnects and says no, they're telling you that's so clear there's something wrong. And, and, and it's so wonderful to have that level of communication, isn't it? You can go, oh, my goodness, there's something I need to do here on your behalf as your horse owner yeah and um, and you have that so that clarity is just i love it so much even if they if they say no to me getting on for a ride okay i can be a bit frustrated in the moment but in the bigger picture i'm like okay we need to look at this what's going on here and and you know and then it's you're back to having that 
lovely conversation discussion and and that that surpasses everything yeah i'm getting this sense um as as we're talking about this that I had when Anna Blake talks about her, she said, it was easy for me to ride up through the levels of dressage. All I had to do was change absolutely everything about myself. And I'm getting a similar sense here (laughs) because as humans, we have a plan. We have our own goals. Our horses don't get to choose the goals that we choose for them. We choose why we're going to buy them, what discipline we're going to do with them. We're going to choose where they live, everything about them. And so to really open connection and relationship and give your horse the opportunity to say no, I'm getting the sense that we really have to change a lot about ourselves as well. I think so. I mean, I think uh, it's important to understand that you can do loads of stuff with your horse and that's really Mm -hmm. what uh, we're all about in the uh, videos but also in the book you can see most of the chapters are practical chapters about how to do stuff with your horse mm. and whether it's um, problem solving or groundwork or riding that's about um, doing it in a way where your horse is joyful and relaxed and the two of you are working together so I don't think it's um, uh, there's definitely through the training you can create um clarity and interest and fun um and a lot of joy doing the things that you want to do with your horse it's just about keeping that conversation open so that you are all of the time um asking your horse how they feel do they understand it are they happy to be doing this and you know even if there there are things that you're going to be working on where they're like do you know what i'm not this isn't what i would be choosing to do right now but you still work through it to get to the point where they want to choose to do it. So for example, if we look at de-spooking work, then um, at the beginning, you're going to be bringing in something which is going to be arousing that a low level of fear in the horse, because you can't overcome a challenge without facing the challenge on a tiny level. So we're looking at the smallest steps of that so that it's the horse is able to to do it and um, able to be successful and not to get so fearful that they go over threshold and and can't connect. But they're going to be a bit like, oh, I'm a bit wary about this. So say you're working with a tarpaulin, for example, with an anxious horse as a de-spooking exercise. They're probably going to be a bit like, I'm not really sure I want to go near it. Um, And they might say, I'd rather we just went over to this other side of the arena and did some targeting over here and you gave me a scratch and a big bucket of feed and wouldn't that be nice? But in order for them to overcome that fear, you kind of have to um, face it a little bit and help them to say, you know, can you come a little bit closer? Fantastic. That's really good. Make that really rewarding for them and stick at that level until they're like, oh, I do actually want to go and explore the top. I want to go and... um, start they they learn that they can kind of rise to that challenge um and then the next time they're faced with something a little bit tricky they're like oh hang on i you know they've got that history in there that they were able to overcome it last time that it was um it was something that was rewarding and they're like oh actually maybe i can go and touch this balloon that you're holding and um you see their confidence and their curiosity build and build and build as you go through these until when you bring out the next spooky thing then they're really like yay this is fantastic um i really want to go and do it and that's something that you see a lot i was working with um one of our rescue ponies rowan recently who has had an awful lot of fear 
about um, everything actually when she arrived and at the beginning if it was something kind of a bit difficult she would just want like turn away like oh I can't do it and you'd have to go and like kind of coax her over like you can you really can like use a target like just come and have a look at it fantastic jackpot okay now let's go away um, and that's really switched around and I was working here recently and we were doing some obstacle training there was a we had a hoop up that she was a bit anxious about um going it was a new obstacle and so I thought okay well we'll do the things that she loves and we'll just go and have a little look at the hoop and uh, just maybe touch it have a little reward go back to something that she loves and feels really confident about and she kept leaving the obstacles that she knew and loved to go to explore the hoop and she, that curiosity has grown even though she was a bit anxious she had that like confidence that she'd be able to overcome it through the uh, experiences that she had which I thought was really interesting um so in that sense like I think you absolutely can do stuff with your horse and what we want to uh teach people is how to do it to, to be able to use this training to be able to um to train the things that you want to train but in a way that your horse wants to do it as well so that element of choice is present all the way through um, and it's not necessarily like oh you know they just want to have a bucket of feed today rather than go and do some trotting and some exercise um, but it's about kind of like keeping that the conversation open so in the moment it's like oh can we go over here like oh I see you're a bit anxious let's just back off we'll breathe together can we have a look all right now let's go forward together so that all of the decisions are, are um are going together so coming back to your original question Tracy <laughs> yes we do have to kind of change our um, time frame I think a little bit just to be more present in the moment and we can set up have these ideas of what we want to achieve but in order to actually get there you've got to work with the horse that you've got on the day you've got to work with the self that you are on the day so if you're stressed or distracted by stuff that's going on at home or work then you're probably not going to be as present and clear for your horse as you might be so on those days you can also be um if you think of it as the partnership that if you're having a bit of a, a tricky day just go you know I don't think I can be there enough to ride or to do something really focused maybe I'll just leave my horse out for a walk together and that's a really nice way to like build your relationship and and set up for a successful session while still doing something with your horse and the same if your horse is you know maybe they're a bit hormonal or whatever's going on it's a really windy day and they're really um jumpy you might go okay maybe today's not the day that we were going to be working on canter like I'd planned let's just stick to some walk instead we'll work on you know some lateral work in walk or whatever it is that you're working on so um I think a lot of it's that learning to be present and seeing the horse and human that you and your horse are together in that moment to make those best decisions yeah still having goals but being very open to negotiation exactly exactly because I think without any goal it becomes a bit like if you don't know where you're going towards everything can become quite um like it lacks any kind of focus and consistency and I think um that consistency is something that's really important for horses that the um it's difficult because we want to bring variety in too to bring in the interest but the consistency gives them that um 
helps them to make that progress and to give them that reassurance and that confidence that they know what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And then as the two of you start to build, um, you know, your skills in one area, it feels good to both of you and horses love to, it's really amazing when you see them, um, you know, learn a new, a new behavior or a new exercise. And that's the thing they love to do for a while. And it feels really good to have achieved it. And sometimes it requires sticking with things to be able to get there. So it is definitely that, that balance. Mm. And I want to take, and I think Tracy is, sorry, can I, I just wanted to add a little bit on this question about how much the person has to change. Yeah. Um, again the process changes you <laughs> and i'm yeah. absolutely i was you know high flying goal driven um straight line all that stuff 20 years ago and over the last 20 years ago horses have um uh, because of the horse if you like i'm i'm so much more i've fallen in love with the process and i think that's where when you start to i have my goals riding and uh, you know i have some big goals on riding i love riding um but I'm not, um, it'll, it will, I'm into letting it happen rather than making it happen. So it is what I'm working towards, but I will never now get on a horse that hasn't said, please get on my back. Um, and I will never get now get on a horse that I don't have a relationship and so on with that. Um, and actually attached to the book launch, we have, um, a three week conference that, um, and one of the presentations I've done on that is about the, about building choice and it features one of our students who has built a tremendous system of her horse she, she when she wants to ride um, she presents her horse with a choice of going and touching a target that has a cross on it or going to the mounting block and if he goes to the mounting block then that's him saying yes I'm happy to be ridden and if he goes to the target with the cross that's him saying I don't want to be ridden and it's this way of finding the way of communicating with your horse but I believe that riding, if it, as long as you are not causing, as long as it's comfortable for the horse and, and, and good for their body, the way you do it and the tack and so on, is that one of the most enriching horse-centered things you can do if it's about going out and exploring because that's the most natural behavior that horses do. That's how they spend their time. You know, they walk 15, 20 miles a day. They are exploring. They're smelling the poos. They're looking around there. They're knowing their area, and I think horses need to geographically map the area they live in and know all about the area they live in to, to really feel very comfortable in their place. So it depends on the situation you're in. I don't think horses generally love going round and round in circles in a dressage arena. I disagree. You, <laughs> no, wait a minute. You didn't let me finish. You didn't let me finish. But you can totally train them and oh, work okay. with them in a way that enables it to be something they get very enthusiastic about <laughs> and freckles who's on the front of the book absolutely loves his movement stuff doesn't he hannah he loves yeah, his dressage because he loves how it his, makes him feel yeah one of his favorite things is that um that conversation um obviously because of the his history with it has been very uh, soft and rewarding and full of choice but he really uh innately enjoys that conversation where you know, it's about the two of us doing different things with our bodies and figuring things out together. So, um, you know, if I put my weight on, on in one way or change my body in one way and he's like, oh, well, do you mean this? And, and how about that? And sometimes he'll be like, oh, well, how about I bring it this, you know, off of this big trot or how about we go into canter now? And like, it's really nice. He quite enjoys the, that, um, 
that conversation and he's really uh, present. I think India likes to be ridden because I can finally keep up with her because she <laughs> likes to go <laughs> faster. And she's like, oh good, you're not holding me back. I can, don't have to slow down for you anymore. We can uh, uh, go for a good canter and a jump together and you keep up nicely. Yeah, she adores <laughs> jumping. She adores yeah. jumping, doesn't she? So, I mean, she's been one of those that's always jumped out of fields and things. Um, in and out. So, <laughs> in and out. So, so riding for her is, and that's where I was, was going with what I was saying was, um, it's finding what liberates your horse. If you want to ride, it's, uh, and I think riding is great. And I think it's a great way of um, getting horses, creating soundness for life if you do it correctly. Um, that, um, but I think it can be so liberating for them physically because we can keep up with them. We can go further and faster um, and enable them to explore and enable them also to explore their bodies or to play at jumping and play at things. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm not one of these people that thinks, you know, what I want to do in my training is have the horse choose to be ridden and choose to join in all the things that I want to do. But I will also change what I want to do in it for any individual horse. And also the process just takes a lot longer than the conventional process. And I think that's something that um, has surprised me and my change, you know, over the last 20 years has actually surprised me how long it takes to um, train a horse at their pace to be, to choose to be ridden and choose to do all these fun things. Um, but on the other hand, physically, it's really good because we know now that they mature physically so much later than we thought. So if you, you know, start, say, backing a horse at five, but not really riding, and you're not really riding until they're seven because you're taking a long time to build up their confidence about somebody on them. You're doing to build their strength and build their um, flexibility and so on. Um, it actually matches much better the rate of their, their bones fusing and their maturation. Um, but, you know, you'd be looking for the kind of stuff from a 10-year-old that other people are perhaps looking for from a five-year-old. Um, but, but who cares? It's a horse for life and you want the horse to be sound for life. You're still going to get another 20 years of lovely riding if you're lucky. It comes back to what you're saying, Rachel, that it's about enjoying the process. And you've got to, if you're going to go this way, you've got to get into um, uh, just enjoying what happens on the day. And finding like, oh, that yeah. was interesting. That didn't go as I expected, but we've had a really nice time. And and I think it's always really prioritizing that the um, the positive time that you have together. And I know that um, from myself and my clients that when you do occasionally push it, when you know you shouldn't really, but because you've got a goal or whatever, even if you achieve the behavioral outcome, if you and your horse don't feel like you're working together as a unit afterwards you feel a bit oh that wasn't really a very good session and or you can oh I shouldn't have done that and um, whereas on the days where you have a plan and it all goes out the window but you actually stay true to what your horse needs in that moment and you stay present and you find a solution to do something else <laughs> that makes the two of you feel like you're working together and you're both um connected even if you don't achieve very much from a behavioral point of view they're generally the sessions where you feel a lot better afterwards because most of us are in this for that um, connection with the horse, and when you prioritise that, it it does feel best. And then you get the you do get the um, the progress as well, and and you do it does enable you to do lots of behaviours. But I think when you really prioritise that, then um, 
that's when you you feel best about the training and the decisions that you've made so it's trying to keep that the forefront of your mind in the moment yeah it really is a, a wonderful thing it's either you want connection or you don't it really is that simple and if you want connection you've got to do what it takes to have connection it's yeah there's no easy sneaky way around it and um, I don't think there's any a sneaky way to building any relationship exactly I'll take the, the, the time and dedication exactly something I found really interesting when you were talking about um in the book about the brain science it's a as the brain is never neutral. This is a really interesting mm. thing and something that I had never considered before. Um, talk to me more about that. Well, it, it is, uh, again, I was gobsmacked when I began to do this brain research and uh, found that fact out. What's the kind of feeling of I, I don't mind or it doesn't bother me or so on? Um, what we can have is a conflict in the brain. So you can be feeling both uh, fearful and curious at the same time. That's a very common combination of feelings. Uh, you can be feeling um, uh, care and rage. So you want to get close to somebody, but you also feel a bit kind of, I've got to defend my space. So we can have two opposing feelings, um, one that's positive and one that's negative, but um, the brain is in a state, never in a neutral state. And I think it's basically um, because all of this, you know, if we go back to the, the, the single-celled amoeba, um, they still move towards something that they want and away from something that they don't want or that they're finding toxic or whatever. Um, so, you know, even with bacteria, you, you, could, you can put you know, half the agar plate has got nasty stuff on and you put the bacteria in there and after a bit of time, they will, will all have moved away and formed their colony away from the toxic area. So everything has evolved from that position. So then essentially the brain has just that, that set up. I either go towards something I like or I move away from something I don't like. It's, it's a reward or it's a punishment in the brain and so that's a very very important thing to understand and i think sometimes when we think there's neutrality we have got one of two things we've either got back to the learned helplessness so we've got a seeking system that is shut down and the which therefore will depress the other emotions too um so you've got a, a basically an under feeling brain or an under an animal that is just not feeling enough so these robotic good horses Basically, their feelings are suppressed. It's not that they um, are feeling neutral. They're just not feeling much. Um, and as Hannah says, so they don't also feel the enthusiasm and, and, and either. So you always have to carry a whip and you're always kind of trying to get them to move forward because they're not enthusiastic about anything. That's not neutrality. That's suppression. That's depression. On the other hand, you can have the, the animals very, very common that's kind of half in and half out the door. And what they're feeling is two emotions. One is positive and one is negative. And they're just in that balance point between the two. So they're feeling a lot, but they certainly are not in a, a neutral place. Um, and that is, it, it is, it does become revolutionary, doesn't it, Tracy, when you start to think about it? Because then you think, oh my goodness, I'm either training, say, by using pressure, like, like, waving a, a whip behind a horse and the horse is moving um, 
you're still engaging the fear system. It is still the fear system that makes that horse move. Yeah. Now the horse They're may not be terrified. They're moving to get away They're from there. me. Yeah. They are moving to get exactly. away. They are moving to get away from even if you stand in front of them and, 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 you know, shake your hands or something at them, you are bringing up the fear system. They're moving away from you. It's not about respect. It's about, whoa, hang on a minute. That's not comfortable. I'll, I'll move back. Um, on the other hand, if you use something as we do, like a target that you hold out in front of the horse and they go and touch it and follow it, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you're bringing up the positive emotions of seeking and play. Excuse me. <coughs> so, um, you are at a very low level, maybe the brain is feeling good. So you can be a low level of arousal of a good or a bad emotion. Um, so you can have what you might describe as a soft, um, negative reinforcement trainer, uh, where the horse is moving and is able to think because it's not absolutely terrified, but you are still associating that walk on cue if you like if you turn it into a vocal walk on but you've used a whip behind the horse to get them to walk on that walk on cue will always have a little feel of fear attached to it a little spin of fear attached to it which is why you then have difficulty if you want to get the animal to walk on um and they don't feel like it you know you have to get the whip out again um because you have to just bring that little level of fear up again to get them to move. That's how most horse training works. Whereas if you have the horse that is moving forward to a target that has been, and they have been given a reward, a food reward, and they've touched the target, the brain is actually in a positive state. It's moving towards something it wants. And then you put your walk-on cue to that. The walk-on cue will have that emotional spin of, ooh, that leads me to something good. That leads me to something that feels good. So it will always feel positive. And that is why you will get the enthusiasm. Now, again, sometimes the enthusiasm will be lower and your horse might, you know, be feeling a bit lazy or just feeling a little bit that they don't want to move forward. But... Um, and you might have to bring out the target again and remind them that, hey, this is something positive we're talking about here. But then you've reinstated your walk-on cue feeling good. So I think it comes down to a really simple choice in horse training. You can either train them in a way that is bringing up the negative emotions, even at a low level, but still they are moving because they are a bit frightened and also because they are restricted in their choice, they've got a head collar on and so they can't just move away that they would like to do. Um, or you do it positively where the horse is associating all your cues with feeling good and with feeling, with feeling the feeling of getting a reward in the brain. Um, and obviously we choose completely to go down the positive feeling way in training. So it doesn't mean to say that in a management situation, if, I, if my horse decides not to move and is standing in the middle of the road, yes, I will use pressure if I have to for safety, but I will not use it when I'm training a horse to walk on. When I'm training, I'm using the positive, bringing up the positive emotional states. But so I that's think it's, really that I simple think, difference. Well, mm. yes, but it gets more complex because, of course, uh, you can have... Um, other emotions that come in as well so you can if your horse is going forwards and you're using a food reward you can as if it's not 
if the emotions haven't been assessed from the start, you can also then bring up some um, frustration or tension or anxiety mm. around the food can be created in there or um, or maybe there's some confusion um, or which again can bring a little bit of anxiety or frustration. So it's about looking at the whole picture of how we can create real um, that, that positive state that Rachel was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so and that's, we... Yeah, that's something really important that we need to talk about as well. Um, so we're laying the foundations first as to how horses really learn. And this is why I love the book so much. And we're going to get to that. And first, I want to talk <laughs> about um, the part in here you've got around calming signals and um, the licking and chewing and how we've been taught for so long that licking and chewing is a good thing. Can you tell me a bit more about that, please? <laughs> It's your area again, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's very much what you were talking about earlier, uh, Tracy, about the switch between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. So basically, um, licking and chewing is a physiological response. We all do it. Um, so if you imagine that you something scares you, um, maybe it's a, a bit of a horror. If you're watching a horror film and there's a really scary moment, what you will do is you will hold your breath, your mouth will go dry and your throat will go dry. Obviously your heart rate will go up, um, your skin will sweat a little bit and, and you'll be in this sort of state of tension. And then when that moment is passed, you will do the, the, the first behavior, the audible behavior is you go, phew, you, you, you blow out because um, that's that letting go of that breath so you can take a proper breath in. And you will get some saliva in your mouth and you'll swallow because you've had this dry mouth. Um, and so you actually swallow and oh, phew. And that's that coming down from that, uh, that moment of anxiety where the body went, from, uh, went into the sympathetic nervous system, into the, oh, no, and, and came out of that and went, oh, phew, thank goodness that's done. So in the horse, the licking and chewing is actually the sign of that relief of pressure, that relief of fear or rage um, that they've been under. So the horse looks at something that's scary and does a very similar thing so that the holds the breath um, and uh, gets a dry mouth because they, and the mouth becomes still and you often see uh, tenseness around the mouth, tension around the mouth. And then they, they, pressure is taken off, the threat goes away, and so they, they breathe out and they do. And so licking, if you see licking and chewing, it means generally that, it means that your horse has had a moment of anxiety um, and, and is releasing from that pressure and from that anxiety. And so when we're training so a horse a and we're thing? waiting for the letdown... We're actually saying that yeah. we've put our horse into that, that space of fear and stress and we're just waiting for them to come back. Yes. Yes. So you don't want to see licking and chewing as a rule in your training. Mm. It's better um, than a tight, tense jaw all of the time. Yeah. <laughs> but... but we need to understand yeah. what it is because we used to think it was a good thing. We used yeah. to think that when we got the lick and chew yeah. in training, it was a good thing. But now we're coming to understand that we've put our horse under probably possibly a little bit too much pressure and they've gone into a stress response of some kind and they're coming back from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So it is definitely people often um, get confused about what, um, 
what is happening with the different, you know, people will say um, the, the relief is a reward. Um, so the relief of pressure is the reward. It is not. It's different. A relief of pressure is um, a reduction of fear or rage. Yeah, it's um, not a it is not the same as a reward, which, you know, but one of the things that is confusing people is because in the relief of pressure in the brain, dopamine can get involved so they can get a dopamine release. And we know that dopamine is rewarding. So one of the things that's going on is that people are saying, oh, well, dopamine, you know, they get a dopamine shot. So that's a reward. But um, I think that's muddying the waters too much because we know it's a relief of pressure and we know the brain doesn't go into neutral. So it's had to be in fear or rage um, or panic in order to then not feel those bad feelings and have the relief and the release of the pressure. So it's a pressure release system. So what you're much better to do, um, if, even if you're not using a reward-based system like we do, is just make sure that you work with your horse at a place before they take that in-breath, before they go. <gasps> so if you start to see that, you know, so taking a big awareness of your horse's breathing and relaxation, so you talked about the calming signals, this is why they're so valuable, is to work at the place where before you even see any of those, those signs at all, um, and and a, a good one is to watch the breathing and to see what their breathing rate is like because it's quite visible in the rib cage. To have relaxed breathing um, and relaxation around the jaw, so that they, they you know, the chin isn't too prominent, which is a, a sign of them being quite tense around the mouth. Um, you know, nice floppy lip, but somewhere between a floppy lip and a, you know, and a, a tense held jaw is probably the place that where your horse's brain is working best before you hit that. Oh, I'm a bit worried. But they can learn, they can learn in that negative state. And, and again, as Hannah says, it's a little bit more complex because there is always frustration in learning. So even if you're learning on a reward-based system, the, the horse will be feeling um, levels of frustration at times, um, levels of overexcitement. So you still have to watch with your um, positively trained horses that they are in a calm and relaxed state. Um, but, you know, basically relief is not a reward. Relief is relief and reward is reward. Um, one of the interesting things as well about licking and chewing is that you can often see horses doing it. If you watch horses a lot, um, they, they will be doing it in their, in their herd sometimes. Um, and I think it's to be aware that horses are so socially um, acute, so socially sophisticated that they can be you know, feeling little bits of pressure, you know, maybe another horse has looked at them and they've looked away and they've given that calming signal of looking away and then they lick and chew as well. So I think one of the ways, reasons we got a little bit kind of um, held on to it and thought it was a good thing is that we saw it with horses doing it with each other. But, you know, we're not a horse. We can't do that subtle communication. I think we have to work at a place where we're not going that far because we can't give all the other calming signals that horses give each other. We're not in those kind of relationships that horses are with each other. So I think we're a bit unsubtle compared to, in fact, we know that. We know that horses have more facial muscles than primates. So, that, you know, that's another recent piece of research. So, you know, their subtle communication is so subtle that I think we have to be quite aware that, you know, we are likely to be a little bit clunky compared to them. So give it the benefit of the doubt and don't go into the place where they're actually having to express such big 
uh, moments of relief. Yeah. And that goes back to um, why this book is so great as well with the, um, with watching those people who have such good feel and things like that, who can read those subtleties in horses that we miss the first 10 that they're seeing every time, you know, this is why this book is so great. Yes, yeah. It sets us up um, to have success like those people, but it, it gives us more of a foundation, which leads us into the next part of the book, which is reading your horse. And it's, Tell me a bit more about um, training your horse and the enrichment exercises and things like that, this, that where we get those nuances and understanding each horse as an individual. Shall I go, Rachel? Yeah, you go. Okay. Yeah. So the, um, <clears throat> the principles of the training are, of course, um, the same as Rachel's talked about for all horses but then within that every horse has their own um, personality their own preferences um, and also their own history as well so we have to have ways to read each individual horse to be able to make the best uh, training decisions for them so that can be as obvious as the horse who's um you know loves people likes to stand still have cuddles but isn't particularly a big fan of going forwards and uh expending energy um to the other, another horse that might be quite um high energy quite anxious jumpy spooky about things and you can see already that they would need a little bit of a different approach so when it comes to um to training your horse then there are different training techniques that you can use to help either bring about more relaxation um, or more motivation. And you actually want a lot of relaxation and a lot of motivation, which feels a bit counterintuitive at first that you could get both of those together. Um, but you can, it's just that some horses might need more of one than the other. So it's as you begin to assess your horse, now you'll already know your horse if you're, unless you're new to your horse, um, if you've already got a relationship with your horse, you'll have some idea about what they'll find um, innately interesting, fun, or more challenging, and um, what they, how they might respond in different situations. But this is, we recommend that you kind of really just take a bit of time to, a time out to just really assess them so um one of the really nice ways to do this first of all is just to watch your horse in the field with their herd and see if they are one of the horses who tends to uh, do they move around a lot do they go and talk to lots of different individuals do they go and um you know eat from the hedge and then they're over there looking at the grass are they the ones that initiate the play do they join in with the play are they ones that tend to be a bit quieter or um, kind of hang back a little bit? Do they seem that they'll just stick with like their favorite companions, but not really talk to the others? You can see quite a lot just from monitoring your horse's natural uh, behavior within their herd, which is um, a really good thing to do actually as well. And just to get uh, present to really, to really see your horse. And you can look for some of those signals again that Rachel was just talking about the licking and chewing, the looking away and some of the calming signals um, or behavioral signs in there too. Um, and then you can also look at the, um, how they respond when you set up a situation. So um, there's the enrichment exercise in the book, which Rachel 
um, has a video on as well and talks about, which is where you um, basically scatter some uh, food or put some buckets out or um, set up a situation with, with food or novel objects and watch your horse and see how they react in that situation. Are they um, really curious? Are they confident? Do they get overexcited? Do they um, get frustrated? Are they a bit cautious and wary and don't really want to approach? And you can learn a lot about your horse's um, confidence levels, curiosity levels, um, levels of excitement. Are they likely to get overexcited around food? Do you see them getting frustrated, pawing the ground, kicking the buckets, not finishing before walking off? Or are they... Um, not that bothered about the food but maybe a bit anxious about the new things that are out there and that'll give you a lot more information as well about how you want to um, interact with your horse and how you might start using connection training um, and taking that information you can then decide how you're going to to begin so of course the the um kind of again basic principle of the training is that you want to mark the moments that your horse does the right thing so that's the saying yes that's it good decision good movement good behavior and then back it up with a, a reward which we use a lot of food rewards because they are really really powerful um, motivator and a very strong um uh, reward innately for every living creature and you all know that just at tea time at the barn when you open the feed room door how excited the horses get so it's a really a uh, great way to bring in some good positive feelings and reward but we want that to be kind of paired with relaxation as well um, and also some other rewards you can use too so does your horse like to be scratched do they like to go forwards do they like to um you know just stand and have a cuddle do they like to explore new things do they um all of these kind of different things so we're basically are going to be marking the moment that they do the right thing and rewarding them with something that they value that makes them feel good that brings up those positive emotions um, and from assessing your horse in these different situations you'll have an idea about what it, what it is that they need rewarding most so if you've got a horse who's a bit um, anxious for example who's not really confident about exploring new things or even going back to what um, what we were talking about earlier about a horse who's maybe a little bit shut down doesn't tend to offer things doesn't tend to engage much um, then you will begin with marking and rewarding them for looking to you or coming to you or exploring something or I'm um, often with those horses I will reward them a lot for when they have ideas themselves so the first time that they're like well how about we go over here or I take this step or I touch this jumper that's hanging on the fence. Like, um, even if I haven't asked for it with those horses at the beginning, I'll be rewarding it a lot because you want to encourage that um, um, engagement, that curiosity. You want to build their confidence. You want to, you want them to know that they're okay. That actually engaging is going to be rewarding. That you're going to be able to to work this out together. That they're not going to get corrected or told off for things that you want them to be an active partner on the other hand if you've got a horse who's super confident and um, maybe ones who gets who got a bit excited around the food who went over to the novel objects and started throwing them around and um, is generally quite a confident horse then you'll begin 
uh, quite differently. So I would begin with really low value rewards and um, either scratches or hay to begin with something really that's not going to get them particularly excited at the beginning. And you'll be rewarding for just standing calmly or to keeping their head away from you or backing up a step or just everything being slower, polite. And for those horses, I wouldn't reward them for offering things because they're already doing, they're already confident to do that. And you want them more to be relaxed and slower and paying attention to you. So, um, and that's the, obviously some quite extreme examples, but um, it, as you assess your horse in their environment and then within the training, you'll see that every horse has these um, kind of specific uh you know just tweaks depending on on what they need and that can change within the session and also day to day as well there might be one day that your horse comes in all excitable and you have to work on okay let's just breathe and slow and the exercises that you choose and what you reward will all be about okay let's just calm soft breathe relax and then another day they might come in and they might be a bit like, well, oh, I was just asleep in the sun. So again, the energy that you bring and the exercises that you do and what you reward might be more about like getting them kind of a bit switched on, a bit more motivated, a bit more excited so that you can kind of bring that energy up to, to work with them. Yeah. And that's, um, there's a lot of people that I know that go into positive reinforcement and then become really disillusioned. And it's because their horse starts getting a little bit too overexcited about everything and they work in positive reinforcement <laughs> yes. and then the horse just becomes too pushy with everything. And if you walk into the paddock and you're not willing to do positive reinforcement, you kind of get mugged and, and, and dominated because the horse is saying, but I want that. And you're giving me choice. And my choice is I want to do this now. And for God's sakes, go and get the damn treats and let's get in, into working. What have, <laughs> what have you got for that kind of horse in those situations? Yeah, so that's kind of your opposite to your shutdown horse, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a horse that's feeling really confident, willing to offer things, but also there's clearly a lack of relaxation, a lack of clarity, um, a lack of boundaries in there too. So um, the most common way that happens is by through training without looking at the emotional state too. So um, it can be very easy to build motivation and enthusiasm with positive reinforcement training much easier than um, most other horse training methods in terms of getting that excitement and engagement and um, but you also want to pair that with relaxation which is why we uh, really prioritize that right from the start so um if you begin with the awareness that we're looking for okay you just need to be able to be, re be relaxed and uh we also from the beginning incorporate a lot of casual connection time so that's just hanging out with your horse but not training um, and bringing that into uh, consciously kind of into the like maybe you'll begin and end your session with some time with your horse where you're not doing stuff they're not getting rewarded for doing stuff you're just being together and that might be grooming it might be just hanging out while they graze it might be going for a walk in hand whatever you and your horse enjoy doing together so that first of all establishes that you can spend time with your horse where they're not on <laughs> they're not trying to uh, find the answer or offer the solution it's just you're just able to be together because you really want to prioritize that relationship and connection 
The type of rewards that you use can make a huge difference here as well. So if you um, bring in, I so said, really high value rewards tend to be, you know, really tasty, high sugary horse treats, high sugary mix with grains in and molasses or um, carrots and apples, stuff like that. It's pretty exciting for a lot of horses. Um, and that can send them up a bit like, oh, a bit, a bit um, whizzy. So one of the things that you can do is to help think about other rewards that you can use. So low value rewards, either like a grass chaff or a um, chopped hay is really nice if you're using food or bringing in scratches as well as thinking about things that they, your horse naturally enjoys. So if you have a horse, for example, who um, likes to go forwards, you can, if you ask them to, even just in a leading exercise, can you halt for a second? Oh, you stood brilliant you'll mark that either with a praise or a click or something and then you say okay now let's go forwards and let's go move because that's something they want to do conversely with a horse who uh, struggles with the forward energy you might like can we go forwards come on off you go and when you get a bit of enthusiasm say hey that's great all right now let's just stand still enjoy the sun have a little cuddle together so being aware of the kind of different rewards that you can use and varying those is really helpful too so that it doesn't just become this kind of quick fire overexcited behavior treat behavior treat behavior treat and that all of the time that you spend with your horses is kind of like uh, can become quite frantic um energy um and even within the training sessions spending time where you know you feed you give them a nice big handful because when they chew that um uh is really important for helping to calm them down it actually switches off the seeking system which rachel might discuss so um but it helps them really to calm and when you feed them and let them chew stand with them and just breathe and ah, let the chewy just hang out for a second until and um, they finish chewing they're able to stand quietly and then okay let's do something together so the two of you are uh are work still working together and getting that connection before you move off and do anything else um so all of these things within the training will really help to keep that that energy really low and um that's much easier to do from the beginning um, whereas if you have already trained a horse to over arousal um with positive reinforcement so um in terms of over arousal we're talking about over arousal of the emotional states which can be over arousal of fear or rage but it can also be over arousal of excitement and uh enthusiasm and a seeking system that just won't switch off which means that the horse is doing 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 and not able just to just be content and relaxed so um if you get into that state where the horse is over aroused it's takes it's very doable and um, i've done it myself and uh, done the videos on that but also it's can take a little bit longer to help to bring them to a place of of relaxation and just to change those expectations and I think that's really the the key is what expectations you set up with your horse right from the start um, and if you train them at this high energy high pace really excited level all the time and don't consciously bring in the times when you're not training when you're connecting in other ways when you're working them without food rewards when you're um just being with them so that that or being even being around them so they're not expecting that interaction from you then um 
they can just expect that all the time when you turn up it's like we're doing this thing and then they can get a bit overexcited which often leads into frustration and tension too um, so it can sometimes take a bit of time just to change those expectations um, but it's definitely doable through all of the things that I've just said but systematically bringing that energy down bringing that relaxation in and making sure that the horse is your horse is with you and is not just doing behavior food behavior food that anybody could be doing with them that you've got more of that conversation and communication which comes in as well to your breathing your focus um, and all of those different elements Mm, which is where the word connection training comes in again doesn't it it's not just positive reinforcement it's about connection the relaxation and everything it's yeah it's wonderful yeah yeah and I think as well it's not something that you um you know you talked about like being mugged in the field and so on um one of the things when you start this is to think okay this is new to me this is new to my horse so don't chuck out everything you're already doing and and actually I would suggest that when you're new to it you start off in a particular place um, where your horse is most relaxed, so it might even be the stable, um, might be it might be the arena, it might be the yard, might be a corner of the field that you've just fenced off with a little bit of electric tape that's not electrified, um, and make it something different. You know, keep doing everything else that you do if you're riding and all the other things, and just make it this little extra thing that you add in at first. And maybe you can you can obviously teach a bit of targeting, which is an exercise you'll always use. But you could always say, okay, then I'm going to teach something, something just for fun, like catch or fetch or colors or something, so that you learn, you and your horse learn together how to do it and how to keep everything relaxed and so on. You know, we use lots of um, just full hay out in Spain here where we've got rescue horses that a lot of them have experience of starvation. Um, we use um, long hay. We don't even chop it anymore a lot of the time. Um, and we just get them chewing and chewing and chewing the hay and just we just stand with them and that's a start. Um, and, and we never ever uh, carry our treat bags or feed them uh, when we go in amongst them in the field and when they're free together. So they, they know where the training takes place and when we're on and they know where it's not going to take place. So there's no point in trying you know, to mug us or whatever. It just doesn't happen out there. Um, and that can, those sort of things can be really good when you, when you start. And one of the great ways to start it is if you particularly, I know it's summer um, in coming in spring in, uh, in Australia for you, Tracy. Mm. So I'm not sure how it works, but you do get very hot. But if you have a period of time where your horse is going to be in a, in a box or in a confined area, um, it can be a really good thing to play with just before you leave because it, it, it tires their brain out. Um, so if, if you're going to be leaving them for the day or the night um, and they're going to be in a confined area and just on hay, then have a little play. Do your little bit of, of connection training um, to get started and to learn it. Do a short session and then you finish off with their feed and their hay and all the rest of it. Um, and that can be a really good way of you both learning it. Um, and also it can really relax your horse and tire their brain out before they have a long period of time in confinement beautiful there's so many good things in here and you can also teach boundaries through positive reinforcement a lot of people don't believe this is possible so tell me how yeah so there's um i think it's really important to be aware of of boundaries now i mean different people mean different things by boundaries but i think 
um, fundamentally, the one of the most important things with boundaries is consistency and clarity. So the horse understands what behavior to do when. And I think it's often when that line is, um, is blurry that people often say the horse is lacking boundaries. So like you were saying, when you go into the field and the horse is like, oh good, we're doing something. It's not acceptable in that situation, but if they're in the arena and they're like, oh good, we're doing something, then that's when the person wants it. So um, I think it's really important to have that clarity about what happens when and to be really conscious about, about explaining that to your horse in a clear way and um, like, we've just said and some of the things that Rachel said about doing it in a specific place or a specific time to begin with can really help that um, as well and just to make sure that that clarity is in place You've, and you can have different ways of explaining it to your horse whether that is you know about the time or the place or um, different objects that come out that mean different things that um, your horse is going to respond to all of those uh, as well. And I think um, another side, and the, I mean, in terms of that, if you are consistent about not rewarding them. So for example, um, here at my home in the UK, we've got eight horses on the yard and it's a, they, they live loose on the yard, three yards, three barns between them. They can all freely move between them. Um, and I need to be able to go and onto the yard without any of them kind of expecting anything. And just by, every day doing that mucking out putting the hay out going and and talking to each horse but not in only interacting with the one that i'm focusing on like rachel said in spain they really learn like oh okay now's a, a relaxed time and spending time with your horse in those relaxed environments um is as important as the training so that they don't just see you as the cue to be oh i'm on now that you can actually be relaxed so again it's that that clarity and consistency of when, when they're on the yard, when they're relaxed, when they're doing these activities, then, um, you know, this is how, how we act. And sometimes when we first get horses that join our herd and they start to get a bit of positive reinforcement and they start to see people as, oh, you're great, you're fun, I want, want to do something today. It can take, um, it just takes a few weeks of them just calmly and consistently, just like, no, not just now, um, you know, just kind of turn them away or, um turn away from them and just quietly like no not here not here and then when they're relaxed going up to them and giving them that scratch on the yard they go oh, okay of course now it doesn't have here this is the behavior and i think that really establishes a lot of, of boundaries um and another side of the boundaries i think is um well it's partly this idea of resilience training so that's being able to say no to your horse or to gently insist on cooperation from your horse without it being a big deal and i think this is another side it's kind of like um i don't know if it's a flip side of choice but it's an important um element of it that there are times when your horse has completely full choice and there are times when they have limited choice um and to teach them that it's okay i think it's really unfair to the horse if we give them completely full choice really um you know loads of free reign just really nice training sessions like oh you don't want to do that no problem we won't address it that, that's fine and then there's a day where the vet comes or the farrier comes or they have to move yards and suddenly that choice because of the, the situation is is taken away and you've not prepared them for it and again it's setting up expectations that then suddenly change that's really stressful so 
bringing in bringing in that awareness of the training and teaching them to be resilient in those situations is really important. So one of the ways of doing that is going back to the what I was saying before about the the um, if you're despooking training and they're going to be a little bit like, oh, I'm not sure I can approach it. Sticking with that just at a low level, making it as rewarding and fun as you can until they overcome it, their anxiety and they want to explore it is one element of that resilience training because they've gone, oh, I'm not sure if I can do this. And you've gone, you can, absolutely you can, let's stick with it. And the more that they overcome those challenges, the more confident they are when faced with a new challenge that there's going to be a solution that they can figure it out. I think another um, some other really good exercises to build in some of this is um, one exercise that I like to do is just have a, a feed bucket and to begin with, depending on the horse, but to begin with, keep it empty. And instead of going to the feed bucket, leading them past it. And that can be quite a difficult challenge because they're all like, oh, I just really want to go to it. So um, again, just have them on the head collar and lead rope. I uh, assume you've trained it uh, so that they're happy to be on the head collar and lead rope at this point and then walk up to the, the feed bucket but as you go to it start to bring your horse's attention and go come on past it come on past it come on past it and they'll kind of have that moment of conflict where they're like oh but but there's a bucket there and as they leave the bucket and come with you I'll reward that and say hey that was really great and you can really build that up to being um you know having something really tasty in the bucket and they've got to to go past it and ignore it or if you're turning them out to the field walk them past the field gate and they'll probably have that moment where they stop and they're like hey but we're going there and you go I know but come on so just a little feel like on the rope saying you can do it you can do it and when they go oh okay and they take a step towards you past the gate reward that brilliant fantastic turn around and go back into the field and this is training the horse that when they are in a situation that they're finding that they'd rather do something else um, that they can have a little bit of feel a little bit of pressure just gently lower arousal levels but they can manage it they can handle it there's going to be a solution it works out really positively and then they get the thing that they really wanted in the first place and by training this i find that when you are in a situation where things aren't 100 um wonderful like um, one of my horses had to go to the horsey hospital for an overnight stay to have her tooth out and things. She's not, she's being handled by a lot of different people. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, injections and things that aren't that great. She needed to be prepared for that situation. And this was the training that, that did it where she was like, Oh, okay, well, you know, it's not my favorite thing, but it's going to be all right. And I think that's a really important piece to train in too. And that gives you those, boundaries if you like because at the time when you need your horse to behave in a certain way you've given you've got the tools to be able to basically ensure that happens um uh, you know within reason yeah absolutely i like that um that explanation that it is a boundary as well that's fantastic it's, it's so much like parenting <laughs> so, so, oh, much, so like much like parenting, like parenting. <laughs> And one aspect of it is, you know, people think about boundaries a lot to do with the horse invading your space and not respecting your space and that. Well, we take a different attitude, which is simply teach the horse where you want the horse to be. And that, you know, our leading training and our um, standing beside us training, um, we just simply work on work with the horse and say, if, if you're there, that's where the reward is. And we might guide their head using a target and so on at the beginning. But, you know, very, very quickly, we just establish with the horses where we want them to be, where we want their head to be, where we want their body to be in relation to us. 
<clears throat> where we want the distance to be. And, and, and we give, you know, I don't mind whether your distance is different from my distance, Tracy. Um, it's, it's up to you. And I just explained to somebody, well, you, if you come up to my horse, my horse will expect to be standing um, with their shoulder just behind you and, the, and their head roughly where your hand is. Um, I don't train my horses to stand behind me. Um, and standing behind me is not the requirement of a good horse. It, it's what you have personally taught the horse is what you want. And, and the default, we, we teach a very nice stand beside us, be calm default. Mm. And it's just training. You're just ex- The horses are not born knowing that this is where they are supposed to be in relation to humans and that they're being naughty or bad or disrespectful if they do something else, if they nudge you or whatever. And it's just teaching them that the, the, the most rewarding place for them to be is, you know, an arm's width away and standing calmly beside you. So it's just all training, really. Um, and there's no kind of right and wrong about it. Mm. Yeah. And, and just then being consistent with that so that you don't yeah. change it. And then the horse is uh, confused and can then be in the wrong. Yeah. Yeah, especially in different hands. So mm. it's lovely also in the book you talk about the connected trainer. So you actually get into the humans as well. Tell me a little bit more about that chapter. Oof, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what I'm going to start with and then I'll pass it over to you, Hannah. Yep. I'm going to start with the, with the philosophy that I learned. And you're seeing this, I'm seeing this quite a lot, different people saying it now um, in different ways. But the one I, the, the, the phrase I love is um, to be at one with your horse, you must first be at one with yourself. And it, it really is back to that um, conscious awareness of, of your own uh, physical balance, where your breath is and your emotional balance. Um, because it's, we project an awful lot onto horses and they are very good mirrors for us. Um, so, Often we are we blame the horse when we are the ones who are unconsciously asking. For example, just that space issue. You know, you're blaming the horse. The horse keeps nudging me. The horse keeps nudging me. But you are standing in a way that's kind of inviting the horse into your space. Or if you're doing positive reinforcement training, you're rewarding the horse in a way that brings the horse into your space. And then you complain because the horse keeps coming into your space. You're like, you, know, you need that awareness of what you're doing. So. The, the first part of it is um, self-awareness and being really aware of your part in the partnership and not putting it all on the horse and blaming the horse or, you know, who are you and how are you and, and you know, where is your awareness? of and, and as you talked right at the beginning, Tracy, it's often about what changes you need to make in yourself because you're unaware that you are the one that is anxious and that you've got an anxious horse so you're the one that's busy 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 do 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 and you say my horse just wants to do all the time and you look at the person you're going yeah but you haven't sat down for 10 minutes <laughs> and, yes. you know let's 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 look at who's who's leading who here um so that's kind of the kind of more philosophical take on it perhaps and what do you think Hannah I don't know that you can get away from that I think that certainly um I know Rachel too but my own journey with it has changed that external it's about doing stuff to more well like it is with the horses I suppose to it's about how I feel and how I am and this relationship and connection that we've got so yeah being aware of the state that that you're in but also what you are wanting to get out of it as well so a bit like we were talking about with the the setting the goals 
having that idea about where you want to go but then being present in the moment is um well it's a bit tricky <laughs> to get there and to be really present about to to learn to be happy and present in the moment with the horse and to accept that what happens today is what's happening today and there's nothing you can do to 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 change the things you can't change you've just got to get into that the moment and do what you what you can there and i think that's a lot of people feel a lot of anxiety anxiety and frustration and um around horse training so anxiety often that they're not doing it right that it's not going the right way that they should be doing something else um or frustration about all of those things as well and um taking those of course to the horse doesn't actually well, doesn't help either of us and i think we work with um uh, predominantly leisure owners and it's kind of rem remembering that we got into this for fun and I think one of the things that I love is to get back in touch with that inner horsey child the one that ah just leaning over a fence looking at horses was just enough to make you feel that so happy about being close to and watching these amazing animals we didn't have all of these um, goals and ideas and agendas to to kind of work to um, and yeah, finding that that in a child, I've actually been rereading some of my favourite pony books recently, which is another <laughs> helpful <laughs> technique for getting back. But um, just taking a moment to to feel that um, appreciation about being with the horse and and being in the moment, and then that makes it then much easier to be aware of yourself um, and what you're you're projecting. So one of the things that we talk about is this idea of internal and external cues and external cues are the ones that you have to teach so um one's voice cues or hand gestures rain cues leg cues that kind of thing when you're riding that you have to go through a process of teaching to the horse but your internal cues are ones that your horse responds to innately so this is things like your breathing your focus the speed that you move your balance both on the ground and on the back of the horse and um often uh, uh, rachel just uh, alluded to that as well if you've got a horse who's kind of uh, rushing and speeding up you kind of have to counter that by really slowing down and if you're naturally a person who is quite busy and doesn't tend to slow down that's that takes quite a lot of awareness and control to be able to get that into your um into your own body just to remember to breathe to slow to have times where you just stand with the horse or you just walk with the horse and it's not always thinking ahead and doing, 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 doing. Um, or maybe you're somebody who kind of struggles with that focus and the consistency and tend to be quite good about being in the present, but it's a little bit dreamy and wishy-washy and <laughs> a bit confusing. So then it's about like, okay, well, having that, bringing that focus to the, the session, thinking how can I set this up about where you're going and what you're doing one exercise that i like to do and get people to do is to talk out loud about what they're doing next so okay we're going to just walk together over to that uh the, to that fence post and we're going to halt and you walk to the fence post and you halt and you uh, give them a warning okay now we're going to go over the pole and we're going to bend a circle to the left and i'm just looking for a little bit of inside flexion um from from the horse as i do it and then we do that and you ha have a reward a moment and you decide the next thing and that can bring in a lot of clarity because sometimes without that focus the horses can get quite um distracted and and confused and lack motivation themselves and again we're the ones that have have the ideas here about what we want to, to do with our horses so it's about um it's like the 
kind of onus is on us if you like to to bring that in but the flip side of that is not then blaming yourself for everything because your horse brings stuff too so it's not always your fault if your horse comes in with a uh you know, really high energy or they're really distracted. There can be other things going on there. And it's about being able to to connect with the horse that you've got in the moment in a really joyful, non-judgmental way for either of you. Mm, it's that um, it's, it's being present, isn't it? And the hardest thing I find as a human being is to deal with the horse I have in the moment, not the horse that I had <laughs> five seconds ago or five minutes yes. ago or five years ago. It, that's the hardest bit, let go of all the story and be there in that moment and deal with the horse I've got in front of me. Absolutely. And especially when you're learning something new, you're like, well, I've learned, you know, you kind of come out with a plan because you're learning it as well. It's You can't just adapt in a moment if you haven't got the tools and the experience yet to deal with um, an excitable horse rather than a horse who's uh, lacking motivation. Mm-hmm. So um, that's or time to go and have a cup of tea and a rethink <laughs> and uh, lots of tea drinking in our training and uh, <laughs> and a rethink and go okay well this horse is in a slightly different place today what do they need instead now I'm going to focus on breathing slowing this exercise is going to help them to calm down instead let's go and try that and getting confident with trial and error learning yourself is another key piece too um it would be such a great little research project to see if every time training changes like every trainer who goes out with a goal and has to have one of those days when they're present and their horse is presenting them with something different and they have to change it if it's actually what the ho- the person needed as much as what the horse <laughs> wanted it seems to work that way doesn't it it is uh, the most magical thing uh, gets into woo woo land and i'm a scientist so you know woo. <laughs> yeah but we it's amazing and you know we find it, we all find that with our own horses don't we and then we find it here where we've got horses where people can come and learn with that you know we're kind of thinking oh gosh that person wanted to do x y and z and really the horse isn't really ready for it and then you find that the abc that they do was exactly what the person needed yeah and and it, it just like this most magical thing but I presume it's because they they are they are I think much much more socially connected animals than we are um I you know they never they you know a horse would never consider going off on his own and having a think about things or (laughs) you know Mm. I just need some time alone isn't in a horse's vocabulary so they they have all the time got to do this thing of of being themselves as individuals while also being completely connected and part of the herd um and i think that's probably what all of us are trying to do (laughs) this isn't getting too philosophical um so we've got to come into that relationship with what we want is that's what we've come into the relationship for but also the reason that we're listening to this podcast and writing these books and practicing in this way is because we we are the kind of people who don't think our horses are tools for us to use for our own gain they're they're these wonderful creatures that we love and we want to make their lives the best it can be we take a big responsibility for that so then we're kind of faced with oh dear (laughs) I wanted to do this thing and my horse is telling me quite plainly that that's not what he wants to do or be part of or is too worried about or whatever and and so we have to change to to um to make that partnership and then you've no idea where the journey is going to take you next but it does always seem to take you where you look back and go I needed this I didn't know I needed this but my goodness it's you know it's sorted 
something out in me. Mm, very yeah. strange, very strange. <laughs> yeah, nothing surprises me anymore. It's it's that um it's it's that big question, why are horses here anyway? And and why is it predominantly women that get yeah. into them? And the parallels are just <laughs> becoming more and more apparent every day for me. And uh Yes, so yeah. We've covered, you know, the 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 real um foundation and the really interesting parts of the book but that's not all this book is about and it now once we lay all these foundations and look at this these things it actually has so many um practical everything you could possibly think of like i don't look at the book and go oh they missed this i'm like wow i didn't even think of that um you've covered so much in the book of practical things that people can do as in how to start with the training and then what you need to know for training for other people handling your horse for medical things that you might need to do for trailer loading for boundaries for so many other things so whilst we've talked about a lot of the the really deep and interesting things it doesn't mean that's all that there is in the book what we've talked about is the real foundation this book is like a textbook that reads um you know all of these interesting things that really get you thinking but then it gets you in the practical and the doing so don't think that this is just a kind of a read and a put down book there's things in every single chapter um, that you can walk out and start doing with your horse and the great thing about it what i've found is i can start doing it with confidence um, every chapter just gives me more confidence which is what we're looking for in our horse as well so i think through this book you have both achieved something that you're wanting us to achieve with our horse you're achieving that with us so it's just such a good book Oh, that's wonderful to hear, Tracy. That it's uh, especially that it's giving you the confidence. I think trying to, um, yeah, give clarity for the human so that they can take the training and and actually do it with the horse. The, the practice is what's important. It's obviously it, it, we need to understand the theory to be able to do it. But what we're all wanting is to be able to go out and connect with our horses in the actual real world. So um, I'm really pleased to hear that you've it's giving you the confidence to do that mm, absolutely and there's loads of theory that we've talked about today but there's even more practical in the book there's so much practical in the book you go to gymnastic groundwork you go to trick training you go to riding you go to through everything in the book so there really is something in here for everyone i believe um it's just a it's worth a read and i see this book um like i've said on my social media i see this book as a serious textbook for every horse owner um whether you're into positive reinforcement and want to use treats or not there's still so much in here that is so valuable to understand about horses that even if you choose not to go down the positive reinforcement once you read it i'd be really surprised if you didn't but even if you're choosing not to use this exact method, there's so much goodness in here that every horse owner needs to understand. Oh, well, thank you for that. And, and, and I'm so thrilled to hear you saying that it, you feel that it's giving you confidence because that's, um, that's the thing that we all need most. It's, it's actually, if you approach a horse with anxiety, it, it, as I did, you know, I, I was this sort of anxious overachiever um, and it, to learn that even I, as the klutz of horsemanship, can, can learn a way and an approach that <clears throat> enables me to then be able to work with really fearful horses, really 
bossy horses, you know, all of those horses and it to be calm and relaxing and joyful is just an amazing thing. So, um, you know, we didn't invent positive reinforcement by any manner of means, but we have got an awful lot of real practical experience and lots and lots of uh, student experiences. I mean, there are so many fantastic photos in the book. We're so grateful to everybody that's let us use their photographs and the wonderful photographers who took them. And I think you, you will see yourself in the book somewhere because there are just so many different people and different horses. Um, because that's what we've experienced and, and uh, wanted to get across. It's, it is for everybody who goes, and not just horses, of course, we do have some zonkeys and mules and so on in there. Um, but it is, you know, you, you, I'm sure you'll find yourself in there somewhere with <laughs> you and your horse. Yeah. And also the great thing is um, the book doesn't just end and, and leave you hanging. You can actually go and join your connection tra training group as well. Yes, so we'd love that. The Connection Training Club is an online uh, club. So it started off nearly 10 years ago now. So there's quite a collection of videos in there. Um, it came, became Connection Training five years ago, I think, and yeah. the Connection Training Club. And it um, has lots of step-by-step -step training videos, home study courses, and there's a forum and live Q&As and monthly challenges and stuff like that. So that's really the practical side to really get the step-by-step the -step, um tutorials on how to actually train it all of these things with your horse and the courses and the ct club follow all the practical chapters so you'll see the courses on the the foundation stuff but then also the loading and traveling gymnastic groundwork starting your horse under saddle riding with connection um handling and healthcare, those kind of things as well so yeah that's that helped us definitely put the book together for creating yes. all of those <laughs> films and uh, that experience and actually some of the case studies in the book come from some of those videos as well so it's uh, all quite tied in together and we do have the nicest group of students i must say um the number of people that have come to our facebook group and said it's it's just such a supportive helpful group um and 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 we do just have these tender students and they're they're very giving of of the knowledge and very sharing of what they know and very supportive of new people and you know we know it's it's a it can be quite a difficult path um to learn this and we just believe in being positive all the way you know being we treat we treat people like we treat our horses so it's just like every, everything is fine and we'll work it out together and no worries um, yeah. and, and our students are just lovely people as well. So it's, it's a great place to be from that viewpoint. And where can we go out now and purchase the book? So the easiest place to get the book is on Amazon. And um, if you just go to your country's Amazon and search for connection training, it's available in paperback and ebook. Um, and it's out on the 9th of November. You can pre-order it already. Um, and to go with that, we've got a three week book launch online conference as well. So that's uh, free if you purchase the book and that's um, a whole load of different training um presentation videos from rachel and i and our coaches and some of the other equine professionals who appear in the book as well and that's running over three weeks from the release date so if you go to um for more information on that if you go to connectiontraining.com and um or forward slash book there's also a 
link there to book and you'll find all the information there. You can download chapter one for free and there's a link through to the conference as well to find out more information and be able to register for that. Wonderful. Is there anything else we need to know? I think the thing about the thing that everybody is saying to us about the book is it's it's a big book should have been called the big book of horse training I think <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's one of the things that have been quite deceptive that people have uh, when they've got the book the, the first comment is god it's a big book isn't it so yeah it, it took five years to from starting to finish and uh We've chucked in many, many years of experience and knowledge in there. So it's certainly um, going to thud on your doormat. Yeah, that's why, that's why it comes across to me as more of um, like a textbook. But the one that sits on your bedside, as it's done for me since the day it arrived in the mail, and, um, and you just keep referencing it all the time and you can pick it up and turn to any page and you're wondering about something and jump in. It's one of those ones that in 20 years it's going to be frayed and and uh it's still referenced all the time that's how i really feel about it and um lovely yeah it's um yeah i I think it's a a real game changer for the horse world so thank you so much for all the time and effort that you've put into this because um you know just just even by people listening to this conversation you know lives are going to change for horses out there but with this book out there you've left a legacy that's just absolutely amazing so thank you Rachel and Hannah for everything you've done so far and thank you Tracy for your wonderful support um and uh and interviewing us again you are our, uh you just bring out the best of us I think <laughs> that's my job very good very good questions but yeah thank (laughs) thank you so much um yeah for having us again and for your really positive comments on the book it's it's one thing to be working on something behind the scenes for so long and quite another to have it out in the world and we've been really hoping that it's going to help people with their horses so it's wonderful to hear that it is yeah yeah i i absolutely can't recommend it highly enough so ladies thanks again and i look forward to uh, seeing this on every coffee table bedside of of horse people all over the world (laughs) thank you tracy (laughs) i'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life this is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that 
boost the podcast up and basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend, tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.